I'd like you to take a Bible out, and I would like you to find John chapter 5. In just a minute, we're going to read John 5, verse 30 to 47. So find it on your Bible app or take your Bible out. There are some notes in your bulletin where you can follow along with what we're going to talk about this morning. This morning, we will wrap up John 5. Next Sunday, I know we always have a lot of folks that travel Memorial Day weekend, but next Sunday, we're going to look at John 6, verse 1 to 15, one of Jesus's miracles that finds a lot of attention in the Gospels. And then we're going to take a break. Over the summer months, we're going to take a break from John, and we're going to talk about the book of Hebrews. And there's 13 chapters in Hebrews. There's 13 weeks over the summer, so we're just going to try to tackle it a chapter a week. We won't be able to tackle everything in those chapters. Uh, you know that if you've ever tried to, to work your way through the book of Hebrews, but hopefully we'll pick up some important ideas and some big ideas along the way. And then when we come back in September, we'll pick right back up with John chapter 6, verse 16. But our passage this morning is the end of John 5, and I just want to give you a little bit of context so you know what's going on in the verses that we're about to read. Jesus' words, and the passage we're about to read is all red letter, if you have a red letter Bible. Jesus' words in John 5, 30 to 47 are rooted in the conflict that began back at the first part of John 5. So some of you have been here all the way through John 5. You know this conflict. If you haven't been here, let me just sort of set the stage for you or remind you of what's going on. Jesus has traveled at the beginning of John 5 from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem. And he goes to Jerusalem for a feast. We don't know which one of the feasts it was. It seems like he goes alone because the disciples are never mentioned in this little section of John. So Jesus goes to Jerusalem for this feast. While he's there, he does not, does not, does not violate the Sabbath. However, very intentionally... He breaks, he violates some of the man-made Sabbath rules that had sort of been encrusted over the top of the Sabbath command. He heals a man on the Sabbath who would have clearly lived one more day, and he commands that man to take up his bed or take up his mat and walk. So he's carrying an item from one place to another, both of those violations of the man-made Sabbath rules, and the Jews are outraged. I mean, the Jews are absolutely furious. Back in John 5, verse 18, we read this. The Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. They've already made up their mind, this guy has to die. He's breaking the Sabbath, and he is calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. So there's a lot of controversy. Tensions are flaring, to say the least. Jesus, rather than try to tamp all of that down takes a can of gasoline and pours it on top of the fire. And in the verses that follow, he starts to make claims about himself that absolutely infuriate the Jews who are already mad enough to plan his murder, right? They're already mad enough to kill him, and Jesus just makes them more angry. He says things like this, I am equal with the Father. We do the same things. We have the same authority, right? He doesn't try to back off of that. He doubles down on that. He says things like, I am the source of life. If you want to live forever, I'm the one who can make that happen. No one else 
can make that happen. Jesus says things like, I am worthy of honor, just like God the Father is worthy of honor. You would worship him, you would serve him, you should worship me, and you should serve me. And then he looks at him and he says, I'm the judge. In the end, you will all give account to me. And they're absolutely out of their mind. They're already ready to kill him. Now they're just over the top. They're infuriated with Jesus. And there's an irony in this passage. We talked about it last week. The Jews have put the judge of all mankind on trial. He's the judge, and yet they have effectively put Jesus on trial, and they've already decided this man has to die. This man must die. Jesus isn't bothered by any of that. Not a bit of it. We'll find out later in the Gospel of John, he's not bothered by any of it because this is why he came. To lay down his life as a sacrifice for sinful people. This is the very reason that he came in the first place. In the meantime, Jesus is going to continue to, if I can just say this reverently and respectfully, give the Jews a piece of his mind. Like he's not done talking to them. He just keeps pouring it on more and more and more. And the words that we're about to read are rooted in the legal provision of Deuteronomy 19.15. Unless your Bible reading took you through Deuteronomy 19.15, it may have been a while since you've looked at that one. And so I'll put it up on the screen. It says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And this kind of just got woven in to Israel's legal mindset, right? To accuse anything, uh, anyone of anything major or to prove anything in a court of law, their mindset was you need to have not just one witness but two or maybe three witnesses. We're familiar with this sort of idea in our own legal system and financial system. There's times where you sign a document and you've got to have a witness sign it for you. Right? You need someone else to come alongside and say, this person really is who they say they are. Or there's times where you need to have a document notarized. You've got to go to the, the guy or the lady and they put the stamp on it and the date and they watch you sign it. And that's somebody saying, this person really is who they claim to be. And this is the legal provision behind everything that we're about to read. This idea that it's not it's not enough to, to make some big claim or charge just on the evidence of one witness. You need some corroborating testimony. And in the verses we're about to read, Jesus is about to bring out that testimony. And so here's the big idea of the passage. God the Father has provided witnesses who can testify about the identity of God the Son. The Father has provided corroborating testimony in the form of witnesses who come along Jesus and essentially say, he's right. He is exactly who he claims to be. He is equal with the Father. He is the source of life. He is the judge. He is worthy of honor and worship and respect. All of the things he's claiming about himself are true. And Jesus is about to introduce us to these witnesses. So let's read our passage and then we'll pray. John chapter 5, verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed 
true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the only one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name. And you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you humbly this morning. We're thankful that you have spoken to us in the Bible. We have a clear word from you. Father, what a high and holy privilege to listen to the words of Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the, the Word of God made flesh. And Father, as we think about what Jesus is saying to these people who were planning to kill him, we ask for wisdom to think about what we need to hear and how it might apply to our lives. Father, we do not want to be hard-hearted. We do not want to be stiff-necked. We do not want to open this book and miss Jesus. And so we pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth and hearts to receive it. Lord, we pray all this in your name. Amen. I don't think I have to tell you that Americans love television. I, I looked up some statistics. I was going to give you some statistics. They're just numbers. They're overwhelming. Americans watch a lot of television. That may be on traditional cable. That may be on streaming services. That may be on all sorts of different formats and media. But we watch an incredible amount of TV. And I don't know what kind of TV you like to watch. Maybe you are a sports person and really you just like to watch sports. Maybe you uh, like the news and you just want to watch the news and you have your own favorite variety or channel of, of how the news is presented. Maybe uh, you like uh, crime stories. Well, you know, who done it and they're trying to uh, solve the mystery or something to that effect. Maybe you like sitcoms, uh, little TV shows, 30 minutes or an hour where some crazy thing happens and it all nicely, neatly gets resolved by the end. But one of the kind of TV shows that Americans love are legal dramas. 
We love legal dramas. I had a friend who ended up incarcerated for a while, and I would go visit him from time to time, and I'd say, what have you been doing? He said, all we do is watch Law & Order all day long. We just watch Law & Order, all the episodes, all the flavors, all the varieties of Law & Order, that's all we do. So we like legal dramas, and if you've ever watched a legal drama, whether it's a, a TV show or a movie, you know the moments of highest tension, like the climax in a legal drama, whether it's a 30-minute episode or a three-hour movie, it happens in the courtroom, right? That's where it really gets good, in the courtroom, and usually with a particular witness on the stand. And the, the big moment might be a surprise revelation, or the big moment might be a gotcha moment for the lawyer, the prosecutor, or the defense, depending on what kind of show you're watching. But we love these kinds of shows, and we love the drama wrapped up in all of that. Now, I think you know, I hope you know, real-life courtrooms are not really as exciting as Law and & Order and all the rest. If you've ever sat in uh, some of these things, you just it's a snooze fest. They just put you to sleep, and you don't know what's going on, and you don't understand. And uh, They don't do nearly as good of a job in real life as they do in television at making it exciting. But there are some similarities between real-world courtrooms and TV courtrooms, right? The types of witnesses that would be called in either setting, are essentially the same. Sometimes you have what you could call a lay witness, somebody who's not really an expert on anything, and they just happen to be at the right place at the right time, and they saw something happen, and so they're called to the stand, and essentially their job is to say, this is what I saw, or this is what happened. Sometimes you call an expert witness, and the expert witness wasn't there for any of it, but the expert witness gets on the stand and says, you know, I have this special training, I have a degree, I know lots of stuff about this, I'm a forensics expert or a psychologist, and here's my testimony about this case. I don't know these people, and I don't know this situation, but I have something to contribute. So you can have an expert witness. Other times you have like a character witness, somebody who gets up and says, you know, I don't know anything special. I wasn't there to see what happened, but I know this person, and I can vouch for who they are, either in a good way or maybe even in a bad way. So the types of witnesses are basically, basically the same. You know that, and I know that. Another similarity in legal dramas in real life is the idea that lawyers usually don't like to ask questions. They have absolutely no idea what the answer is going to be. Generally, if you're trying a case and you're the prosecution or the defense, you get the opportunity to ask a witness question, you'd like to have a pretty good idea of what's going to come out of their mouth when you ask a particular question. And so if you've read uh, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, there's a quote in there from Scout Finch, and Scout says this, never, never, never on cross-examination, ask a witness a question you don't already know the answer to. That was a tenet I absorbed with my baby food. Her dad was a lawyer. Do it. You'll often get an answer you don't want and an answer that might wreck your case. Look, John 5 is not an actual courtroom. There's no court reporters there's no TV cameras filming a scene for uh, the primetime drama or no Hollywood crew turning it into a, a movie production. It's not an actual courtroom of the Jews. They're not going through a formal legal proceeding. But I want you to understand, as John is describing this scene to us, he's given us all the signals. This is a courtroom setting. right? There is a trial taking place here. And the great irony is that these 
Jewish leaders in Jerusalem have put Jesus on trial. John 5, 18, they were already seeking to kill him. I mean, in their minds, the trial was already over. We've already decided the outcome. The death penalty, capital punishment, is what needs to come down on this man. And in the verses that follow, Jesus takes the stand, so to speak. He steps up to these men who are plotting to kill him, and he starts to testify about who he is, and they're enraged. I mean, they are furious. And Jesus knows they're angry, but he also knows that in their minds, they're probably about to pull out Deuteronomy 19.15 and say, ah, you need someone else to bear witness about you. You can't tell us who you are on your own. And Jesus acknowledges that in verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. Some translations just say my testimony is not true. It doesn't mean Jesus was lying about himself. It's just Jesus acknowledging, I know that you're not going to accept what I have to say about myself. I know that you want more proof. You want further witnesses. You want more evidence. And in our passage, he starts to provide it to them. In Jesus' mind, God the Father has provided all the evidence that these people needed to make a decision. Some Bible scholars, when they look at our passage, they try to sort through how many witnesses are there. I'm going to present you with three. Some Bible scholars say they're fourth, and they say God the Father is the fourth. But as I read the passage, I think what Jesus is saying is God the Father is the one who has provided these three witnesses. His authority stands behind all of the three that I'm about to parade up on the, on the, the, the platform or on the, the jury uh, presentation here. I, God the Father is showing you and speaking to you through all of these people. And he says it if you look in verse 32. He says, there's another who bears witness about me. It's not enough for you to listen to me. You want to listen to another. And I think he's talking about God the Father. And I think he brings him back up in verse 37. Look what he says in verse 37. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Now this is interesting. The Father's borne witness, but Jesus says, you haven't heard his voice. And you haven't seen his form. That's a curious kind of witness, right? One that you don't hear and one that you don't see. How am I supposed to take in the testimony of the Father? The witness of the Father, if I don't hear him and I don't see him. And I think what Jesus is saying is he's provided it through witness number one, through witness number two, through witness number three. And look, you this morning, sitting in this room 2,000 years after these words were spoken, you find yourself drawn into this courtroom scene. You're now part of the, the deliberations. Right? Jesus has healed a man on the Sabbath and told him to carry his mat. These guys have decided Jesus needs to die. Jesus stood up and he has spoken truth. This is who I am, equal with the Father, the source of life, the judge, the one that you should honor. And the Jews are about to bow up and say, we need more testimony, and Jesus is about to provide it. And this morning, you've got to make a decision. You've got to make a call one way or the other. This story is drawing you in. And you may have noticed there's not a lot of resolution at the end of this story. Like Jesus speaks, and then it's over, and then we're moving on to something else in John 6. 
John doesn't say, well, this is how it ended up or this is what they decided. And that's John's way as the storyteller of drawing you in and saying, what are you going to do with this testimony? It's not just about what these men did with it. It's really about what you're going to do with it. Are you going to buy in to the testimony of these witnesses? And so, who are the witnesses? Let's just ask and answer that question. Who are the witnesses that testified to the identity of Jesus? Number one, John the Baptist. Remember, in the Gospel of John, every time you read the name John, it's talking about John the Baptist. It's never John the author. It's always John the Baptist. Verse 33, Jesus says he was a witness to the truth. Verse 35, Jesus says he was a lamp. And for a while, you rejoiced in his light. Meaning, John showed up and he started talking about a Messiah and you got really excited. You thought, hey, this is great. We could use a Messiah. You were excited. You rejoiced in the light that he was shedding. But then when John looked at me, And said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You were done with John. I wasn't the kind of Messiah that you wanted. You got excited about the idea of a Messiah. But when John pointed to me, you started to dismiss that witness. John is the first witness. The second is Jesus' works. His works. Verse 36. The works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works I'm doing. Healing this man on the Sabbath, turning the water into wine, clearing the temple and the other signs that he did at the first Passover celebration. All of these works are proof to you that I am who I actually claim to be. I think there's a a small lesson for us when we think about signs and wonders and miracles here. In Jesus' mind, the reason he was doing these signs, these works was to prove that he was who he was, that he was who he claimed to be. It wasn't just a matter of alleviating suffering. It was really proving his identity to those who had doubts. And it's true, Jesus had compassion on people. He cared about people. He wanted to to pull people out of suffering. But if that's all he wanted to do with the signs and wonders, he could have said to the Jews, I don't have time to argue with you. i got to make the rounds at the hospital. I just got to go around and heal people. If that was the purpose, he could have spent all his time doing that. He didn't. He didn't heal everyone. Not every leper was told to get up and carry their mat. In Jesus' mind, the reason that these things were done were to prove that he really was who he claimed to be. They were verification or confirmation of his identity. Thirdly, you've got John the Baptist, you have his works, you have the scriptures. Verse 39, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in the scriptures, in them, you have life. It's they that bear witness about me. The scriptures that you think give you life are actually pointing you to me, the one who has life, the source of life. We could look at all the prophecies, we could look at all the predictions, we looked at some of those in the book of Isaiah just a few months back. I mean, we could just laundry list them out. From Genesis 3 all the way up to the last verses of the Old Testament in Malachi, we could just parade all the prophecies out and say, pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus. 
We could talk about special days. We could talk about buildings. We could talk about people. We could talk about themes in the Old Testament and say all of these things are pointing you to Jesus. How about just the overarching story itself? The whole story of the Old Testament is pointing you to Jesus. When you read Genesis to Malachi, you come away understanding the God of these people is a holy God. He's different than Baal. He's not like Asherah. He's pure and he's perfect and he's complete. And he does not tolerate sin amongst his people. And when you come away reading the book of Genesis all the way to Malachi, you walk away saying, we are a mess. We do our best sometimes to go into the Old Testament and turn these people into heroes. It's a train wreck from Genesis 3 to the end of Malachi. God's people make a mess of it over and over and over again. And the Bible does not hold back saying, look, sometimes these people did a great job trusting God, but these people were a mess. They're sinful people. Genesis 6-5 gives you the clue right there at the beginning that the Lord looks down on mankind and he sees the thoughts and the intentions of his heart are only evil continually. That's us. You've got a holy God and you've got sinful people. How in the world is there going to be relationship? You read the, the Old Testament you come away saying the only hope for human beings is if God saves us. Hezekiah could not save the people. Abel could not save the people. Moses could not save them. David and Solomon could not do it. Isaiah could not do it. Habakkuk could not do it. The only one who could save the people is God. He's holy, we're sinful, and he's the one that's going to have to provide a savior. All of that points you straight to Jesus. That's the kind of thing Jesus is talking about when he says, you search the scriptures looking for life, but they're pointing you to me. Prophecies, predictions, types and fulfillments, but even just the big story is pointing you forward saying, if we're going to live with God, he's going to have to save us because we can't do it on our own. Jesus brings these three witnesses out, and these three witnesses are set before you today. What will you do with their testimony? John the Baptist says, this is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. Will you accept that testimony? Every miracle that Jesus performed is saying to you, He is the one sent from the Father. He is who He claims to be. You have this big chunk of your Bible on the left-hand side. And the whole thing is saying, You need Jesus. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. What are you going to do with these witnesses? Tragically, the people listening to Jesus stuck their fingers in the air and refused to listen. They didn't want anything to do with Jesus or the testimony he bore about himself or the witnesses that he paraded. And I just want to lay out for you the consequence. I want you to understand what the stakes are. If you refuse to listen to these witnesses, what's the consequence for you 2,000 years later in Odessa, Texas, as you find yourself drawn into this courtroom scene? If you refuse to listen, what's the result? Number one, you won't understand the Bible. Look at verse 38. Jesus said, you do not have his word abiding 
in you. You don't have Jesus' word abiding in you. Do you know what these men would have thought when they heard that? Of course we have his word abiding in us. We read it. We teach it. We have degrees in it. We have authority to to exegete it. We've memorized massive portions of it. What do you mean we don't have God's word abiding in us? Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think you'll find life there and they're the ones who bear witness about me. You don't understand any of the Bible. You might be able to beat everyone in the room at Bible Jeopardy. You might know all the facts and all the addresses and all the references and all the verses and you might still miss Jesus. You understand that when Jesus said this, you search the scriptures and they're pointing you to me. You've missed it. He's talking to men who know more about the Old Testament scriptures than anyone alive on the earth at that time. He's not pagans living out in the bush who have never heard up from down, don't know about Genesis 1 or creation or Moses or any of it. These are people who know more about this book than anyone else. And Jesus says, you don't have God's word abiding in you. Why? Because it's just an academic exercise for you. It's just a matter of debate and argument for you. You've missed the whole point. I think there's a serious warning in John 5 for people like you and me. We just had a new member class, and one of the things I told our new members is God's Word is our authority. We're going to preach it. We're going to teach it. We're going to help our little kids memorize it. We're going to study it. We're going to submit our lives to its authority. It's going to be our rule book, our guidebook, our guardrails. This is our roadmap. This is our source of truth. It's authoritative in our lives, and it's sufficient for what we need to know, right? We are people of the book. You come listen to sermons about this book. You go to Bible study classes and we study this book. You come on Wednesday nights and we talk about this book. Jesus is talking to people who studied the book. And he says, you've missed the whole point. You've missed it. It's just an academic exercise for you. It's just about gaining talking points and and supporting your own views and arguments for you. You have missed the whole point point. Now look, we believe this book is essential. Let me put a few scriptures up on the screen. Look at Romans 10. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Unless you hear the truth of this book, no person will be saved. You've got to hear the truth of the scriptures. Look what we read in John 17. Sanctify them in the truth, Jesus prays. Your word is truth. You will not grow in holiness as a follower of Jesus apart from this book. You can't meet Jesus apart from this book. You can't grow closer to Jesus apart from this book. But studying this book isn't magic. These men studied it, and they missed Jesus. Don't miss him. You can fill in all the blanks. You can have all the right verses memorized, and you can still miss Jesus. There are pastors all over North America who have nice pieces of paper on their wall and lots of letters after their name, and they don't love the sheep, and they don't feed the sheep. And I think if Jesus were to walk into 2019, he would look at those guys and say, you know the scriptures 
But really, you don't because you've missed me. You don't care about the things I care about. There's people in Odessa, Texas who could quote to you the Ten Commandments in order, one after another. And yet you look at their life and they have absolutely no love for God or other people. You look at that and you say, you can quote them. You think they should be on the schoolroom wall, but it doesn't affect you at all. It looks like you missed it. You missed the whole point. There's people in churches in Odessa who could quote to you the Great Commission out of Matthew 28 who have never lifted a finger to make a disciple, who have never made any kind of sacrifice for global missions. Jesus would say, you've memorized Matthew 28. Great. You have it on a coffee cup. Fantastic. It's on the wall of your living room. That's amazing. But you missed it. Don't miss Jesus. You ignore these witnesses. You never understand the Bible. What are the consequences? Second consequence is this. You won't love or honor God. You won't love or honor God. I want you to notice how many times Jesus says in this passage that he was sent. just want you to pay attention to the word sent. Verse 30, he talks about the will of him who sent me. Verse 36, he talks about the Father has sent me. Verse 37, he says the Father who has sent me. And verse 38, he says you don't believe the one whom he has sent who is Jesus. He just says it over and over in this passage. The Father sent me. I'm sent by the Father. He sent me. Jesus' argument is, you cannot claim to love the Father if you don't care a thing about the one he sent. There is one way to honor and love the Father, and it's by loving and honoring Jesus Christ. That's it. We're back to this issue of exclusivity. We've been talking about it for three weeks now. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. Acts 4.12, there is no other name given among men under heaven by which people might be saved other than the name of Jesus. And he's looking at these men and he's saying, I know you claim to love God. I know you can give all the right answers. But you have rejected the one that God sent. How foolish to think that you could honor the Father and dishonor the one that the Father sent. How preposterous to think that you could love God without loving the one that he sent. It's not possible, Jesus says. And he puts his finger on the real issue in verse 44. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you don't seek glory that comes from the only God? That's the real issue. These people cared more about self than God. They wouldn't have said that. They had all their theological ducks in a row and they would have said, yes, Deuteronomy 6 says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. They knew that. God should be first. But Jesus says the real problem here is that you don't love God first. You love yourself first. And if you love yourself first, you're not going to love God and you're certainly not going to love the one that he sent. So Jesus is saying you've got a decision to make here. Right? He's calling out the witnesses. This is what John says. This is what my works say to you. This is what the scriptures say. Are you going to listen to this testimony? Last consequence, number three. The consequence of ignoring the testimony of the witnesses, you won't avoid judgment. Stated posit positively, you will experience judgment. 
Jesus says it this way in verse 45. Do not think I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. I'm not going to have to do it. Someone else is going to do it, Jesus says. And the one who accuses you is Moses, the one on whom you've set your hope. Moses gave you this law, this old covenant, and you put all your eggs in that basket. And you're hoping that your obedience to the law of Moses is going to save you. You're hoping in Moses. And Jesus says in the end, this would be like the 2019 paraphrase. In the end, Moses is going to throw you under the bus. And then Moses is going to get on the bus and back it up over you again. I mean, how ironic. Your hope is in Moses. The wrong place to put your hope. Do not put your hope in your own ability to obey these scriptures. The scriptures are not giving you Here's how you earn your way into heaven. The scriptures are showing you you can't earn your way into heaven. God is holy and you're a sinner and you need God to step in and to save you. And so you listen to Jesus. You listen to these witnesses come up on the stand. And it really comes down to this question. Who are you hoping in? What are you hoping in for salvation? Did you see what Jesus said in verse 34? He said, I'm saying these things to you that you may be saved. I'm not trying to just pour gas on the fire. I know I've described it to you that way. I'm not just trying to cause controversy or argument. I'm saying this to you so that you can be saved. And if you refuse to listen, you will not miss out on the judgment. Moses will back the bus up over you. What are you trusting in to be saved? Some of you are really no different than these guys listening to Jesus. What it really boils down to is you're trusting in the fact that you're a pretty good person. I'm pretty nice. I'm pretty moral. I'm pretty upstanding. I don't do a lot of bad things. I don't say bad words. I don't hang out with bad people. I'm a pretty good person. Your goodness can't save you. Only Jesus can save you. Some of you are trusting in the fact that you spend Sunday mornings here in this room during this hour. Like a, you're trusting in a, a participation, like hoping for a participation medal. Like I'm, I'm around at the right time, I show up, I pay my dues, I'm a part. These guys were involved in all the right things and they missed Jesus. Participation isn't going to save you, only Jesus can save you. Some of you are trusting in, you know, when I went to this camp or went to this place, I had this experience, I had this feeling that came over me and an experience is not going to save you in the end. Jesus can save you. Believe in Jesus. Not in some experience, but believe in Jesus. Some of you say, you know, I'd, all the specifics here and it's, it's a little too narrow. I just, I, I'm a spiritual person and I try to be nice to others. Right? We could just go on and on down the list of what you're hoping in. If it's not Jesus, it leads to judgment. If it's not Jesus, it leads to judgment. He's saying these things to you so that you might be saved. Right? The case has been laid out before you. It's been laid out before me. And the question is, who will you believe? Will you listen to the testimony of the Father? You say, I haven't seen him, I haven't heard him, but... Here's the witnesses he's provided. John the Baptist, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. 
right? The scriptures, every detail, every prophecy, every theme, every idea pointing you forward to Jesus. The miracles we read about proving he really is who he claims to be. And the challenge that John sets before us is very simple. Believe. Just believe. Believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Believe that he came to accomplish what he claimed he was coming to accomplish. Believe that his word is true, that he's the source of life, that he's the son sent from the father, right? that he's the one who has all authority to judge and that he's the one that we ought to honor and worship and serve. John says, believe.